Let's start our Bible study in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. So yes, we're starting with the last verse of a very long chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, just a little silly story to start with. Uh, there's a lot of jokes about heaven. I don't know if you've noticed. Some of them, quite frankly, are very, very unbiblical. You can still laugh at them. Doesn't make you a bad Christian. But this one, I don't, I don't see anything too terribly wrong with it. Uh, in the story, in the joke, uh, a very wealthy man is talking to the Lord and, and says, you know, Lord, I know that we can't take anything with us when we die. And, and that's a real shame because I worked really hard and I did it all the right way. And I, I just feel like it's a shame that I can't take, bring anything, any of the fruits of my hard earned labor. I don't have anybody to leave it to. And so he has this vision where God says, okay, you've been a faithful servant. I'll let you bring one thing, but it all has to fit inside a, a, a single briefcase. So he says, oh, thank you, Lord. And the next day he takes as much money as he can and converts it into gold and puts it in that briefcase. So he passes away and finds himself standing at the gates of heaven, holding that briefcase, that very heavy briefcase. And they allow him in and he's excited to see everything. But the angel who's guiding him around says, I heard about you. You're the guy that God allowed to bring something with him. I, I'm just real curious what's in that briefcase. And he snaps it open and he shows him those bars of gold. And the angel goes, you could bring anything in the world and you brought pavement. <laughs> so, you know, pick that one apart if you want. It's not the best joke in the world. But um, I guess the point for us is we don't even know how good things are going to be. I think we underestimate the glories of heaven. We get way too excited about things that are passing away and not excited enough about the things that are to come. That The whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, ends in an interesting and an unexpected way. It says, chapter verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now note the therefore. And I and better Bible preachers than me have taught you, I'm sure, that whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you always ask, what is it there for? So what, what, is, he, what is he pointing back to? Therefore means because of all this, this is true. So what is the therefore? He's saying as a result of the entire chapter. Everything I've said since the beginning of verse 1, since the very beginning when he says, I'm going to share these things with you, these things that are of first importance. And remember, he talks about how this world is not all there is. There, there is something that comes after this. He talks about how there is a resurrection day coming for every one of us. Resurrection isn't just something that happened to Jesus. It did happen to Jesus, and that is the foundation of our faith. Apart from that, we have no faith. We have nothing but some random beliefs that are no different than any other philosophy or religion on earth. But with the resurrection, we know that everything Jesus said was true. A resurrection doesn't just mean His rising, it means our rising. A resurrection day is coming for all of us. It, is, it will happen at the end when Christ returns. And it will be a bodily resurrection. Our eternal future is not one of being a ghost or an angel or a spirit floating in the ether. We will have physical bodies. That is the testimony of Scripture, not just in 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. 
Jesus talks about it too uh, when he says, I will raise them up on the last day. That's a scripture we'll look at in a couple of weeks when we start a new series on the I Am's in the Gospel of John. Uh, Romans talks about the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies. And there's testimony in the Old Testament as well as the New. Revelation right on down. Physical bodily resurrection is our future. And then fourth, that our bodies, our new bodies, will be glorious, imperishable, and powerful. Those are the three descriptors that we get in 1 Corinthians 15. And there's debate on what all that means, but it's all good. We know that we won't get sick or die. We know that we will be able to stand in the presence of God, whereas now you and I cannot. We need a mediator. Um, And we know that we will bear his image, his perfect image. Right now, uh, we sort of bear his image, though, through a glass darkly, you might say. It's sort of like uh, a kid who you can say, "Uh, you sort of look like your dad. No, someday we'll be the spitting image of our father. We will bear his image, not just physically, but in the way we behave. So based on all of that, if you were writing 1 Corinthians 15, what would you expect the therefore to say? Based on that, I think most humans would think the next thing out of Paul's mouth or pen would be, therefore, you don't have to fear death. Just go through life without a care in the world because you know good things are coming. But that's not what he says. Or you might, uh, you might expect him to say, therefore, this life isn't all that important. Don't worry about the things of this world at all. Don't worry about them. Don't sweat them. Just sit back and wait for glory to come. But that's not what he says. Instead, he says, therefore... Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord always, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So let's just break that down into two things, two two commands. Number one, be steadfast. In other words, hold on to the truth. That's what he says when he says be steadfast, be firm. Um, Remember, if you read the New Testament, one of the constant themes of the New Testament is something you don't hear in churches very often today, which is... Watch out for false teaching. It's ironic how little you hear that from pulpits today, since it's such a major theme of the New Testament. Now, I'm not saying that we need to become uh, self-important, self-righteous heresy hunters who sit in our life group and nitpick everything our, our Bible study teacher says, or that if you hear me say something from the pulpit and you're not sure it's true, you should stand up and start screaming heretic. I'm not saying that. There should be grace and there should be Christian charity, but there also should be guardedness. I mean, an idea that this is one of the devil's tactics. He loves to infiltrate God's church with false teaching. That's why things like these are in the scriptures. Acts 20, 29. This is Paul, Paul speaking uh, before he left Ephesus. He says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Paul was predicting, once I'm gone, I know there will be false teachers. Some of the men who come in behind me will not preach the true gospel, and they will cause you trouble, and they will lead some of you astray. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2, he says, to his, his young friend Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Again, this is Paul not speaking on his own authority. The Spirit has told him this. And Paul's not the only one. Jesus talked about it over and over again. Remember, by their fruits you will know them, he said. John, in his first letter, says, test the spirits. 
You know, make sure. Don't, don't listen to just any preacher, but test their words against the standard. Do, does he preach that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he came in the flesh? We, need to, we, we have to be critical thinkers and critical listeners. Just because someone uh, is eloquent, just because, because someone is interesting to listen to, and especially just because they say things that you want to hear, does not mean he's telling the truth. And sometimes I can take the form of prosperity gospel and saying, oh, you know, just follow this path and you'll have lots of money and you'll have great health and everything will go your way. But sometimes it's in the form of politics. And well, he, he hates all the people I hate and he likes all the things I like. So he must be preaching the truth. That's not necessarily true. You have to, you have to measure everything that is said. The books you read, Christian books, the, the preachers you listen to on the radio, on podcasts, on television, in your pulpit, in your life group. You have to evaluate them by the standard, the unchanging standard of God's Word. Now again, that does not mean that we lose our sense of kindness or charity. What does Paul say about how to correct people who are in error? 2 Timothy 2.25 says, He's talking about the, the godly man, the good preacher. He says, those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now, there does come a time sometimes where you have to cut ties with someone. And, and I've seen that happen. Fortunately, it hasn't happened in a church that I've pastored but I've seen it happen where somebody uh, in, in one of the Sunday school classes is teaching something that's clearly error. And they get confronted and they get angry and they leave. And that's, that's a sad thing. You don't want to see that happen. And yet it has to be confronted. You do, your goal is not to expose them or embarrass them or to make yourself look good. That's why you don't do it publicly in front of everyone. You go to them personally. You speak to them with kindness and you think to yourself, if I was in error, how would I want someone to talk to me? Because as Paul says, your goal is that you hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. And if you do that with a humble spirit and they get angry with you anyway, well, then you can stand before God and say, I believe with all my heart I was doing God's will. I wasn't doing this for any kind of selfishness. I was doing this for the sake of the church and for the glory of God. So that's what he means when he says, therefore, be steadfast and immovable. That doesn't mean be stubborn, okay? There are plenty of us that are steadfast and immovable on stuff that doesn't matter. But there are things that matter. There are things that we as Christians ought to be willing to die for. Those things are, are not the things most of us get all hot and bothered about. And, and I bet... Brother Bob over there would agree with me. I don't know that I've ever been in a church that split over something like that. I, the churches that get angry and split usually do so over issues that don't matter. That's the tragedy color of it. Carpet. Yeah, color of the carpet. That's right. Yeah. And whether you should wear waders when you baptize. Oh, goodness. <laughs> I, man, I've never even fought that one. <laughs> so be steadfast, be immovable. But the next thing he says is always abounding in the work of the Lord. If all these things are true, then yes, hold on to the truth, but also keep doing good works for God. Don't get tired. Don't retire from serving God. Don't, don't take a long break from serving Him and from reaching the lost and from meeting needs. Because as he says, what you do, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, why does he say it's not in vain? Well, 
I want to quote to you this passage of Scripture. This is from the book of Revelation. Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. For their deeds will follow them. In other words, I think it's wrong when we look at this world and say, well, this world is passing away, so what happens here doesn't ultimately matter. As long as I'm being faithful, as long as I'm a good person, that's all that matters. No, what we do here does matter. What we do here matters eternally. It's not like, well, this world is a sinking ship, just rescue as many souls as you can and let the whole thing go down. No, what happens here matters. And that means more than just people's eternal souls matter. That means things like uh, rectifying problems in our society matters to God. That means something as mundane as picking up the trash on the side of the road matters. That means that bringing reconciliation to a family that's split matters. It's not enough just to say, well, all those people are saved. That's all that matters. No, more than that matters. Your good works done in the name of God, even if you can't draw a direct line between those works and someone's salvation, still matters. Your works will follow you. Your deeds will follow you. I don't know exactly what that looks like. I've read some speculation that's pretty tantalizing. Um, This idea that, well, let me just put it this way. I read a story once, and this doesn't have anything to do with it, but I thought it was a good illustration. There's a college in Minnesota. I wish I could remember the name of the college. Maybe some of you have heard this story before. But every year, they make this huge mural. And the way they do it is they get two or three really good artists to sketch it out on the wall. So they sketch out this this mural, and, and it's just sketched out. It's not colored in. And then they invite people from the community to come and paint a section of the mural. So let's say I'm, I'm volunteer number 33, and I come in, and I see number 33 up there, and it says, okay, color 33, uh, pink and blue. And so I color it pink and blue with my paintbrush. I don't know what I'm painting. I just know that my little section is pink and blue. And then I go away. And then months pass when other people come, and they do their part. And then at the end of the, of the academic year, they unveil the painting, the whole mural, and it's huge. It's the size of the side of a building, right? And only then does everybody get to see what it looks like. It's this beautiful work of art. And everybody who's contributed, that's the first time they've seen the final masterpiece. And every single one of them do the same thing. As soon as it happens, you see fingers go up because they're saying to their friends, I did that part right there. That part right there. See that little pink and blue part? I did that. And the reason I, I like that story is I think that is my, maybe an illustration of what it'll be like for us on the new earth when it says that our deeds are not in vain. We'll be able to look and say, okay, somehow some part of this redeemed world that God has created, I did that. Now, you know, just like in that story, it, it isn't our skill, it's just our willingness. The skill was the artist who designed it. In the same way, we won't be able to say, well, you know, that person saved solely because of me, or this this feature of the new earth is here only because I did it. No, we'll say, God did this, but he used me. This little part of it, he chose to use me. That will be thrilling. 
You know, you talk about rewards in heaven, and we, the Bible never tells us specifically what those rewards will be. Lots of songs talk about mansions and cars and earthly things, and maybe some of that will be the case, but maybe a lot of it will simply be seeing the, er- the heavenly results of our earthly deeds and being able to walk every day on the new earth and say, God used me here. God used me to bring this glorious result about So your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And then he jumps to chapter 16. Tonight's going to be short. Um, Chapter 16, we're only going to go through verse 1 through 4 because it's a natural transition. He's given us this long section about the glory of the future, of the resurrected life. And then he says, so hold on to the truth and keep doing good because what you're doing is not in vain. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. This is just like a preacher. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. You knew he was going to talk about money, didn't you? Concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So you may remember if you were with us uh, this past fall, yeah, fall, when, when we were in our series on the life of Paul, that what got Paul arrested, what got him sent to Rome in the first place was he went to Jerusalem with a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, the Christians in that city who were impoverished because they didn't, the Christian community didn't have much money and their fellow Jews alienated them, ostracized them because they had believed in a crucified Messiah. So Paul was trying to engineer a reconciliation and, and a unity between the Gentile and Jewish Christians. And one of those ways was, let's take up a collection. Let's help out our Jewish Christian brothers. And that'll bring those two parties together. And remember, Paul went knowing he was going to get arrested, knowing that trials and and pain awaited him and yet he knew this was God's will right you remember that well this this is his letter to the Corinthians saying okay I've already collected money from others now it's your turn and so in a sense that's not the whole reason he gave us chapter 15 remember that came out of a, the idea that the Corinthians some of the Corinthians didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead but he he uses that to jump into the section of hey when you're standing in eternity, you're going, to have, you're going to wish you had been generous. So here's your opportunity. We've got brothers in Jerusalem who are literally starving. They're trying to serve Jesus. The devil's trying to use their, their uh, painful and impoverished circumstances to tempt them to stray from the faith. Let's support them. Now notice what he says, how, how he... Uh, I guess you could say, engineers this offering because this is not a typical offering. He says, on the first day of the week, that's when they met, that's that's the day of Christian worship, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now you might say, if you've been in church all your life, well, why doesn't he just say, give 10% of what you make? Because isn't that what your preachers have taught you all your life? Doesn't matter how much you make, just give 10% right off the top. Well, now he says, well, however you may prosper. Well, I think that's because this is my opinion. The tithe is to go to your church. 
The tithe is for the operation of and the ministry of your local congregation. What he's saying is, as you prosper, those of you who have something extra, those of you who can, give what you can give. You've already given your tithe. He doesn't address that. That's not, that goes without saying. He's saying, whatever you have, whatever you're able to give, give it. He says, do it ahead of time. I want to get there. I don't want you to have it take up a collection when I'm there. I want to be able to just spend time with you and, and, and teach you. But when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter. What is, he, what is he talking about there? I don't want to go alone. You recall that Paul did not go to Jerusalem by himself. He went with a whole gang of guys, if I remember right, nine people. And a couple of them were his ministry partners, Silas and uh, Trophimus and people like that. But others were people from the different churches. Why? Well, first of all, it was very dangerous to carry money on those ancient roads. If anybody found out he was carrying a collection, his life would be in danger. But secondly, and, and so there's strength in numbers, but secondly, he wanted accountability. He wanted to be able to say when, when this mission was over, this guy's from your church. He saw me deliver that money. He had eyes on me the whole time. If I would have gone and bought things for myself or kept some of the money for my own purposes, he would know it. He can testify. And that's still such a smart way to handle things. You know, as a pastor, I hate it when people come up and hand me money. And sometimes it happens. Walking out of the church and they'll say, oh, preacher, I forgot to give my offering. Here, can you put it in the plate for me? And I never say no, but I sure hate to take that money. That, that's a bad position for me to be in. I've talked to other pastors who think I'm wrong about this, but this is why I don't, I'm not in on who gives what. You know, Lisa, who is our financial secretary, she never tells me, hey, so-and-so gave this donation or lets me see the giving records. I don't want to know. I don't, I want to be as far removed from that process as possible. Not because, uh, not because, well, put it this way, somebody's got to do it, but I want it to be multiple people. And, and I don't want, I don't want there to be temptation for me or room for accusation on the part of others. It is wise in all our financial dealings to build in accountability as much as possible, right? And if there's ever a situation where one person and one person only knows what's going on, there's more than likely going to be something wrong that happens. And Paul knew that. Paul was doing the right thing. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. And of course, he did. So, why? Let's get down to the final question, because we're not going to go any further tonight. Next week, we'll finish chapter 16, assuming we're not in a new ice age and all, you know, <laughs> hunting woolly mammoths and living in igloos. But um, <laughs> why did Paul feel like he had to take this offering? Why did Paul go to Jerusalem knowing that he was going to be arrested. Remember, it wasn't just the Spirit speaking to him. At one of his stops, a prophet named Agabus came up and said, they're going to bind you hand and foot and haul you off. And yet he went anyway. Why? There's no, there's no glory in intentionally putting yourself in harm. There's no glory in doing things that you know are going to be self-destructive and saying, look at, look at me, Lord. That's not our calling. So why does Paul walk into a dangerous situation? Because He's obeying the clear call of God. 
which doesn't make any sense without an eternal perspective. If there's no heaven, then you and I would find it much more likely, much more reasonable to give God only a little bit of obedience. Okay, Jesus died for me so I could be forgiven. Okay, I'll go to church once in a while, but that's, that's it. That's no further. But if eternity is real, if the promises of Scripture about eternity are true, then we literally can't give, we can't outgive the Lord. There's nothing we can give Him that He won't repay over and over and over again. In fact, I'll put it a different way. If we believe the promises in Scripture about heaven, that's going to lead us from time to time to do things that don't make sense to the rest of the world. We're going to do things that make people say, I don't understand the logic of your decision. That doesn't seem wise. And we'll be able to say, well, from an earthly perspective, I understand that, but I'm looking forward to the day to come. I'm laying up treasure in heaven, not here on earth. So that leaves us with the question, what do you do or what have you ever done that only makes sense if heaven is real? That only makes sense in light of eternity. You and I ought to be able to come up with some examples. I'll give you two examples that I've seen, and that's when people forgive. Forgiveness doesn't make sense apart from eternity. When a, a, a child is abused and grows up with that pain, that, that horrible pain that he or she went through, and to grow up and forgive their accuser, that doesn't make sense unless heaven is real. When, when you have an enemy, someone who has made your life miserable, maybe by spreading gossip in the office or maybe by, uh, maybe by taking something that rightfully belongs to you. It doesn't make sense to obey the command of Scripture when Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who hate you unless there's such a thing as eternity. Unless you believe that God is going to give you the justice in eternity that you've been denied here on earth. See, if heaven's not real, then vengeance is what makes sense. But if heaven is real, you can say, I'm free to love you and release all this hatred because I know that either you're going to repent and get right with God and you and I are going to be brothers or you're going to face justice. I don't have to, I don't have to bring you to justice myself. That's one thing that you do that only makes sense in light of eternity. The other thing is radical generosity. And I don't just mean tithing. Tithing, I think, makes a lot of sense. I, you know, when Carrie and I made very, very little money, we tithed and we just, that was the way we were raised. I don't think we get any special credit for it. We were raised that way and we started off marriage that way and it seemed to work. We never had fights over money. We always had enough. I'm talking about radical generosity where you give things away, not just money, maybe time, maybe possessions, maybe, maybe your talents where you give things away that make people think, what are you doing? That doesn't make any sense at all. That doesn't make sense unless you're storing up treasure in heaven, unless you're investing in the bank that lasts forever. And there's going to be a day someday, I think, when people we didn't see as particularly financially astute, we're going to look at them in awe and say, Goodness, I wish I had lived like him. I wish I would lived like her. Look at the eternity they're enjoying. 
And you might say, well, isn't that a, a selfish motive for doing good deeds? I don't know. Why, why would Jesus tell us about it if he didn't want us to use it as motivation? We ought to understand that this world only lasts so long. And so we shouldn't see it as an opportunity to get what we can while we can, but instead as an opportunity to serve the Lord and bless others while the opportunity is there. Because I don't know a lot about the next life, but I know there's not going to be lost people there. And I know there's not going to be hurting people there. There's not going to be poverty or disease or pain there or separation between families and friends and people. So if we have a chance now to do good works, abound in those good works, let's do it now. This week I was uh, in my own Bible reading, I was reading the book of John and got to John 8. And actually John 9, Jesus is uh, with his disciples and they come across a man who was born blind and the disciples say, Lord, who, was, who sinned, him or his father or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus has to explain to them that's not really the way it works. And then he says, listen, I'm here to do my father's work and we need to work while I'm here. While it's day, we need to do work. Because night is coming when there won't be any work to do. And he said, by the way, I'm the light of the world. And then he makes, restores the man's sight. And I never really focused on that, that verse, verse 4 of chapter 9. While it's day, we need to work because night is coming. And it reminded me of the hymn that we used to sing in my home church. I don't know if any of you sang this growing up, but it was work for the night is coming. Right? Now, okay, I don't want to make anybody mad. But I went back, because I hadn't sung that since I was a kid. I looked it up on the internet, and I read it, and I thought, you know, it's not really all that deep of a hymn. It doesn't really even talk about the Lord at all. It's just, work for the night is coming, work, 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 you know. But it's a good truth. It's not a great hymn. There's a reason why we don't sing it anymore. But it's a great truth. Night is coming, and then you won't get to work anymore. And you'll regret it. Do I think there will be regret in heaven? Absolutely. The joy of the Lord will, will overcome that, and yet I do think we will look back and say, I wish, I wish I had done this instead of that. I wish I'd been focused on loving others and less focused on getting what I wanted. I, I wish I'd, I'd been storing up uh, treasures for my eternity instead of my earthly retirement, you see. Work for the night is coming. That's the message I want to leave you with. God has given us and continues to give us opportunities to serve him. Praise his name for that. And let's do it. So, uh, Sharon, can I get a prayer list too? Uh, let me pray for us first and then we'll pray over our prayer list. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for tonight and for our Bible study. Thank you for our congregation for your resurrection and for our resurrection to come. Please help us to be firm in the truth as a church. Help us to always stick to the truth of your word and nothing more and nothing less. And I pray that we would abound in good works for your glory and praise. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.